Good morning. Today's scripture reading is taken from Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. I'll be reading from the NIV. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue, and he went next door to the house of Titus, Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning, Trinity Church. So good to see you here. Thank you for being part of our worship time this morning. For those of you that are watching our service online this morning, thank you for joining us that way and being a part of this uh, worship time. And uh, <clears throat> thank you, Roger, for reading God's Word to us and Dana and team for uh, leading us in our worship time. Um, beautiful songs reminding us of the forever nature of God's kingdom and the beautiful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just to be able to sing it, say it, and lift that name up together is uh, just glorious this morning. And uh, as we come to God's Word, let's pause again, let's pray, let's ask God to speak to us as we read His Word together. Lord, we thank You for this time in Your Word. Thank You that You have given us this privilege, this, this precious time of worship together. Lord, You know we need this You've prescribed this for us because of the need for gathered corporate worship, fellowship, the reading of Your Word, time in prayer together. It's just to be reminded, Lord, of the truth of Your Word, the calling of Your church, and the precious future and hope that we share. Uh, Lord, all of that is, is a needed encouragement for us on a regular basis. So I thank You for providing that this morning. Thank You for the joy of singing together, lifting our voices to You, and thank You that You've spoken to us. You've not left us without direction and instruction. You've given us Your revealed, inspired Word to guide us, to tell us what Your plan is and to tell us what our lives are to be like and to remind us, as You do in our passage this morning, that You are with us always. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help me to accurately, rightly communicate your truth this morning. I pray that your word would be alive to us and in us, and that your spirit would be the teacher and encourager and instructor that we need to apply your word to our lives. 
And as a result, Lord, we will give you all the praise and glory, and we ask that you would give us the strength and the courage to live out your word as we go from this place today. And we thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus that we've been singing about. Amen. So if you watched the uh, video that Beth and I sent out yesterday, as we always do on a Saturday before I'm going to be preaching on Sunday, then you know that we have had our family together yesterday. In fact, both of our kids and all of their kids, so all kids and grandkids were together at our house yesterday through the day. And uh, this morning, our son and daughter who came down from Wisconsin are driving to Florida. They are going to celebrate their anniversary. And we have their two kids, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Beth and I will be taking care of them for the next four days. I say that so that you'll pray for us for strength. And uh, they are awesome kids, but, you know, we're a little older than we were when our kids were four and two, and so uh, we're looking forward to this time. And then they're coming back, and we'll have the whole family together again on Thanksgiving. But you know how it is when, when you get your family together, and again, if you watched the video, you saw us play this out a little bit, this uh, phrase, who's with me? So I said to the kids, you know, I'm going to go upstairs and play race cars. Who's with me? And all three of the boys, were, they were ready to go. They jumped on board and were ready to run upstairs and, and race the cars. Later in the day, just kind of carry out even beyond what happened after the video, I said to the family, hey, it's beautiful outside. I'm going to go outside for a walk. Who's with me? And about half the family came with me. The other half stayed home to fix lunch. And so that was pretty good. You know, when your family enlarges, it gets harder to get everybody together doing the same thing at the same time, right? So to get half the family out, and we took a walk up the street through the neighborhood and back, that was great. Later in the afternoon, when the kids were down for their nap and rest time, I said to the adults, the six of us, I said, hey, let's play a game. Who's with me? And I got all six around a table, and we played games for about an hour while the kids were taking a nap. That doesn't happen very often anymore with all the little ones. You know, sometimes there are things you, you want to you jump into something, but you want others to come with you. And that's where that phrase comes from. Who's with me? I've chosen that for the title as the title for our sermon today because as Paul walked into Corinth, he must have been saying, Who's with me? Because he goes in alone and he's going into a tough environment. Let me remind you of where we are. We're in the book of Acts. We're studying our, our series, To the Ends of the Earth, is the name of the title as the gospel goes out. Today is the last message in the, in the study for a while. We're going to take a break and have our Advent series starting next Sunday. We'll go through the end of, of the month of December. In January, we'll come right back and pick up our, where we left off in Acts 18. But for today, I'd encourage you to take your Bibles, turn please to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 18. Last week, we looked at chapter 17, and we saw how Paul moved into this, this capital city of Athens, a city that was was well known, and as Jason brought that message, Paul comes in and he speaks to the philosophers, and these people would meet together, and Luke tells us all they would do is come around and talk about the latest ideas. It was kind of the nature of that city. And yet Paul, though he has some success and some people come to faith, God moves him out of Athens pretty quick. And, and my thought is, wait, that's Athens. Why wouldn't you stay there? Why wouldn't you keep Paul there and get the team there? But God has another plan. So God takes Paul to the city of Corinth. 
Now, I want to show you on the map here what, what's going on here because there's Athens. He comes over to Corinth. It was only about 44 miles away, so not a long journey. And yet these two cities were worlds apart because of what was going on. So Athens, as you know from last week, was known for its philosophy and education and just the thinkers all gathered there. Corinth was known instead for commerce and trade. It was a busy port city, and you can kind of see it's on this little strip of land. And so stuff would come in from the Gulf of Corinth and go across land. It was a trade route, and then over to the next body of water. And so maybe because of that and all the trade coming through the city, the city also had become known for idolatry and immorality. It was a rough spot. And, you know, we talk about Vegas being the sin city of our day. Well, Corinth was definitely the sin city of that day in the first century. There were shrines and there were temples to the Greek gods. There were temple prostitutes. There were, for hundreds of years, around this time and beyond, the very name of the city had become a descriptor. So to Corinthianize meant to be involved in sexual immorality. That's how much that practice was identified with the city itself. Corinth was known for its sin. And so all this pagan worship and immorality, all that was going on must have been a, kind of a shock to Paul as he walks into Corinth all by himself. But he wasn't actually alone. And that's what I want us to focus on in our passage today because I want us to be reminded that God never intended for us to walk through the Christian life alone either. And just as God's going to bring a team around Paul and remind him of his own presence, we need that reminder too. Now, as we look at these key phrases and principles this morning, you're going to say, you know, this is pretty simple. I mean, you need a good team around you. There's our first point. Well, of course you do. But the obvious sometimes is what we miss. And the obvious and the most, is sometimes the most important. And so this morning, I hope you hang with me, listen and watch how this happens to Paul and to his team and to his ministry and see how God does this in your life and my life as well. So notice how God provides a team for Paul. First, people were introduced to that you heard it in the passage Roger read is Aquila and Priscilla. So Luke tells us a little bit about this Jewish couple. They come from Rome. They left Rome when the emperor Claudius expelled Jews from the city. There was some disruption going on, and we know this from history as well. And so here, Acts is paralleling actual history, and, and we're seeing this couple. They're, they leave Rome. They end up in Corinth, and Paul meets them there. Apparently, they were Christians already. We're not told how they came to Christ, where or how long, but they meet up with Paul, and they become Law, lifetime friends with Paul. I mean, co-workers. You're going to see their name pop up again in the book of Acts. You see their name pop up in Paul's letters. This couple, Aquila and Priscilla, became fast friends and laborers with Paul. And amazingly, maybe part of this, the connection was they shared the same skill. So Paul apparently, as rabbis often did, as he's growing up in Tarsus, he learned a skill, a trade. And Aquila and Priscilla practiced the same trade, that of tent making. 
Now, when we think of tents, we think of, you know, going to REI and getting a tent made out of canvas or something like that. That's not the, the kind of thing they were working with. Probably something more like in this picture here. So goat skin leather, that's what they would have been working with, sewing together and b making tents or other kinds of leather goods out of these goat skins. And so they find this camaraderie that they have the same skill, the same trade, and apparently Aquila and Priscilla already had a business going in Corinth, and Paul just joins right in. And so he's working, making things with leather during the week, and it comes to the Sabbath, and Paul goes into the synagogue, and he preaches. And that becomes his his practice, his schedule. So already he's got friends, he's got a team building. It's only three so far, but it's a team. And if you've ever done this and worked with a team before, especially in a ministry setting, you know how you bond with somebody else. When you're serving together, when you're working together, right? So if you go on a mission trip and you're kind of living life together, you bond. If you've ever been on a Samaritan's Purse team, you're out there working together, you bond for the last week and a half, if you've been back here in our renovation project, there's been bonding going on back on there. The guys have told me that. It's so wonderful to work side by side and have this time together. And you share a, a vision, a goal that you're working on together. And you share experiences through the day together. Sometimes you share a little pain and suffering together as, as the work gets hard. That's a bonding that happens. Ministry, when it happens together. We see that in Paul's life. We've seen that. We experience that in our own lives. We need that. It's something we long for in our lives, even when we don't recognize it, even when we don't jump into those experiences. And if you haven't recently, I encourage you to do that. It's a kind of bonding we need as believers. So God not only sent Paul these new friends, now he sends him his old friends back again. So here's our next building of Paul's team, Silas and Timothy, come back. Remember, he left them in Macedonia. They were back in Thessalonica and Berea. They were still helping establish those churches. Paul got run out of the cities. They stayed to help the church form. Now they finally catch up with Paul. They never caught up with him in Athens. They catch up with him in Corinth. And so they come, and that enables Paul to drop the tent making and begin to go full-time into ministry. So now every day he's preaching, he's teaching, he's giving the gospel out in the city of Corinth. And probably Timothy and Silas brought in help from those churches. This is another great way we see the churches cooperating in the New Testament in that first century. So these new churches, they've just formed, and they're already giving to help the work, the mission work of the journey, the mission's journey that's still going on. And so Paul and Silas, or Timothy and Silas, bring financial resources to help Paul in his ministry now in Corinth. And we know that they also brought encouraging news about the status of those young churches. Paul would have been eager to hear, hey, how's it going? How are those new churches going? And they bring this encouraging news. In fact, we know this because of the letter Paul now writes. Now, here, this, I love this because here's where the book of Acts, which is a historical book, begins to dovetail with the epistles, the letters of Paul in the New Testament. Beth and I are both reading through the Bible. I've told you that before through this year. And as we're tracking through right now, we're in the book of Acts, right about here. In fact, this week, I just happened to read Acts 18, the same passage we're on in our sermon series. But at the same time, we're reading a chronological reading of the Bible, so it's weaving in the letters of Paul. And so the book of 1 Thessalonians, which is believed to be the first letter Paul wrote, he writes from Corinth. So he's still on the second missionary journey. 
The church in Thessalonica has just recently been planted, and now Paul gets this word from, from Silas and Timothy, and he says, i got to write them a letter. i got to encourage them. And so he writes 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians while he's in ministry in Corinth. Let me show you this, 1 Thessalonians 3, 6. Here's part of what Paul writes back to that church. He says, But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. See how the, the, the bonding is happening. Paul with this church and this church with Paul and with his ministry and what's going on in Corinth, the connections are happening. The value of teamwork just jumps off the pages of this passage. So physical and financial needs of Paul were met because these churches gave, because Paul and uh, Timothy and Silas came, and because Aquila and Priscilla jumped on board. The work is getting done. How does that happen here at Trinity? We've had some great examples in the last few months, right? Nick shared a few of them right at the beginning of our service today. How did we manage a few months ago to send $12,000 in relief funds to Haiti? Well, it's because, Trinity, you jump on board, you came together, you gave together, and the church in Marble Hill gave to bless believers and the rescue efforts in Haiti. That's how the church works. That's how it started. It started in the first century, and it's how it still works now 2,000 years later. How did we happen to be able to serve 1,200 people at our fall celebration a few weeks ago. How could, that, how could we do that, a little church here in Marble Hill? Well, because we came together, we gave together, we served together, we worked together. That's how it happens. We became a team. How did we sponsor, as you heard this morning, 600-plus Operation Christmas Child boxes and 200 Thanksgiving dinners? How did we do all that basically at the same time? We came together, gave together, served together. I should see a couple more pictures just this past week, downstairs in our fellowship hall, we had a team of people come together from what you gave to pack those 200 Thanksgiving dinners that are going out to help families and bless families this next week. I just want you to get a little visual of this. Food spread out, cans spread out, all going into individual bags, 200 bags, adding now frozen turkeys are going to be added to those bags, which are a little harder to come by this year, by the way, if you've tried to shop for turkeys. Church coming together, serving together, working together, giving together to be a blessing to the community. So God does the same thing in Corinth. Paul has new friends who come from Rome. He has old teammates coming back. But the whole point of the missionary journey, of course, is to welcome new friends to faith in Christ, right? To grow the church through new believers. And that's exactly what happens next. So here's a few more names to the list now. The team is growing. Titius, Justice, and Crispus get added to the, to the team. So Paul focuses attention on the gospel, giving it to the Jews in Corinth, but the usual opposition arises. You heard that in the passage read just a moment ago. Luke tells us when the opposition became abusive, Paul shook out his clothes, his robe. He shakes the dust from his robes and his feet. And he says to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And remember, this is Paul's pattern. He takes the gospel to the Jews. If they reject it, he goes to the Gentiles. And it happens again here in Corinth. 
And so this is his way, this kind of a visual way of shaking the dust from his clothes is saying, I've done my duty. I've fulfilled my responsibility. I've given you the good news. You've chosen to reject it. I'm going to the Gentiles. And then, I don't know if you caught this as Roger was reading this, but it's, there's this stroke of almost like, like divine irony or maybe even, maybe even God's humor here. Do you notice he opens up a door for the gospel right next door to the synagogue? This man named Titius Justus, who was a Gentile, not a Jew, but he was a God-fearing Gentile. He'd come to know and, and worship the God of Israel. But now he hears the gospel. He responds to the gospel. And when Paul gets kicked out of the synagogue, he says, hey, come to my house. You can preach here, right next to the synagogue. And isn't just that just like God to do that and say, well, we're going to keep the gospel message right here, whether the Jews like it or not. And then an even greater stroke of irony, perhaps, is that the synagogue leader, this is the head Jew of the synagogue in Corinth, his name is Crispus, he becomes a believer. And so he moves next door. I'm sure they kicked him out of the synagogue once he became a believer. He comes next door. He's part of the believers. And a church is forming in Corinth. They join forces. They become part of the team. And here's what I am reminded of for us today, and that is, that our desire and prayer as a church must always be for conversion growth. Yes, it's wonderful when God brings folks new into the area that already know the Lord, or, and some of you have come that way. You've, you've found Trinity Church as your home church, coming from another good church somewhere else. That's awesome. But we also want to grow by people coming to faith in Jesus, that our witness, that our faith will inspire others to come to faith and so that they become part of Trinity, part of the family, part of the team here as brand new believers. Now, I look at it as a little bit like a professional sports team, maybe just because I love sports, but this is what it made me think of. So, you know, when, when a, the Atlanta Braves or the Hawks or the Falcons, it, it, they grow their team by bringing in other players. Sometimes they'll trade with another team or get somebody off free agency but they also grow their team by bringing in rookies. They just graduated from, from college, sometimes even just right out of high school. They show the skills. So they're taking a little risk. They never played on a professional sports team before, but they, they bring them onto the team because those new players bring a lot of potential and excitement and freshness. The same is true in the body of Christ and the team of the church. There are new believers that need this fellowship, that need the discipleship and the camaraderie of the church to help them grow in their faith. So what do we see here in Acts 18? I think for us, like Paul, the lesson is simple. You need a team around you. Do you have a team around you? Do you have an Aquila and a Priscilla? Do you have a, there's someone that comes alongside that you, you have a lot of things in common with? And you share your faith with, and you just kind of partners in growing in your faith. Do you have somebody like that in your life? Do you have a, a Silas or a Timothy? Do you have somebody who's truly a partner, a worker, alongside of you in your faith? Do you have a Titius Justice? Do you have a Crispus? Do you have somebody who's new in their faith, who's learning and seeing faith in you? And they're growing in their faith because of you. We need those all, we need those members on our team, in our lives. And we've facilitated in various ways here at Trinity, like in any church. Are, are, you, are you in a small group walking through your faith with others? 
Are you on a ministry team? Are you serving alongside of others? Discipleship and ministry are intended to be experienced together. We see it in the first century. We see it in the church today. Paul needed a team, and God provided a team, but he needed more than that. And that's our second principle and point today. You must remember, too, that God is with you. You can have the best team in the world, but if you don't remember and depend on the fact that God is with you in life, in your everyday, then you're going to struggle. God is on your team, and you need to remember that. Paul needed that reminder too. So he has another vision here. We move on into verse 9 of our passage. Remember, he had a vision a while back, a couple chapters ago, the man of Macedonia, the call to go to Macedonia. That's why they're here. That's why he's in Greece. But this time, the vision is a word from God himself. Verse 9, God says, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Now, the very nature of those words that God speaks to Paul tells us that Paul must have been struggling with some anxiety, with some fear. Why else would God say those words to him? And in fact, we know that to be the case. Again, we are instructed in terms of what was going on in Acts by the epistles, and so Sometime down the road, when Paul writes back to this church in Corinth, that's the letters of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he says this, 1 Corinthians 2, 3, we'll put it on the screen here for you. I came to you, he's telling the Corinthians, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Paul's admitting it himself. He's saying, hey, when I first came to Corinth, I was scared to death. I'm trembling in my boots, sandals or whatever he wore. I was scared. Now, why? Why would Paul, who we revere as this great missionary and man of the faith, how could he be afraid? Remember, he came into Corinth by himself. Yeah, a team is starting to build. There's some response. But remember, he's going into a city, and he's going to the synagogue where he knows the Jews are going to reject him. He's experienced that enough times before in other cities. He knows he's going to hit opposition. And he also knows he's going into a city where there's great darkness A lot of sin, idolatry, immorality. The culture is against him, against his message. That's why Paul's afraid. It's a little bit like this. And just to try to give you a sense of this, imagine you were called to be right now a missionary in Afghanistan. We're going to fly you in. You're going to go into Kabul. And there, right, this is a picture of a mosque right in the main heart of the city. We want you to plant a church right next to this mosque. Would you go in with a little fear and trembling? Yeah, I would. I'd be scared to death flying in there and say, this is my ministry now, this is what God's called me to do, because some people are doing it. And we prayed for them when we talked about the persecuted church and we talked about the needs in Afghanistan. We prayed for that. We're giving to mission efforts in that country. But it is, it's a work with fear and trembling because there's danger, because there's there's difficulty because there's opposition. And that's, if you, if you wish to get a little sense of what Paul was feeling, it's the feeling you're having now to know this is what you would feel if you were called to go right into Kabul and start a church. So what encouraging words did Paul give? Did God give Paul in the midst of that fear? 
Okay, let's go back. To, let's look at this verse. Take it down. Four phrases I want you to see in here. First, he says to Paul, don't be afraid. Keep speaking. Okay, I know you're afraid, but you've got to keep giving the gospel. Don't stop speaking. And Paul needed that. He needed to know, okay, God, I, I, should I keep speaking? This is a little dangerous. Yes, keep speaking, God says. Then he says, secondly, I am with you. We're going to come back to that in a second here, but he needed to know that. You're not alone, Paul. It's not just you and your little team. I am with you in all of my power, in all of my presence, in all that I bring to the table, Paul, I'm with you. Third, you will not be attacked and harmed. He gives them the promise of this protection. It's going to be okay. Then he says, fourthly, I have many people here. That's an interesting phrase. What does he mean by that? God is telling Paul, I want you to continue in this ministry because I've got people that are going to come to faith. My church is going to grow here. The body of Christ is going to expand right here in Corinth. I want you to stay. I want you to keep preaching. I am with you. And you know what happens? When Paul gets that vision, when he receives that, that word from the Lord, look at verse 11. What happens? So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. He keeps teaching. He keeps preaching for a year and a half. Now, recognize that's the longest Paul has been by a long shot of any other city he stopped in through his missionary journeys. Many other times, Paul, uh, God has led him to keep moving. Remember how we talked about that, how the, the, the fires of, of uh, persecution kept his feet moving from one city to the next to the next to the next, and the gospel kept spreading? But this time, God says, I want you right here. I want you to stay. I know it's hard. I want you right here in the middle of the fire because I'm going to grow a church right here. So Paul stays for a year and a half. Here, and here's what I want us to grasp from this this morning. When you're struggling with fear or anxiety, and we all do at different times for different reasons, your most important reminder, the most important thing you need to grab a hold of is that God is with you in the midst of it. Not just to take it away, not just to remove the struggle, but to walk with you through the struggle. That's what he's telling Paul. That's what his promise is in this passage. He promises to be with him in the midst of the struggles. You know, there are a lot of verses in the Bible about God's presence. I think one of my favorites is Psalm 46.1. Listen to these words, Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Not our ever-present help to get us out of trouble, our present help in trouble, in the midst of the trouble. God is our help. And this is what God promises to Paul. I'm going to be with you in the midst of it. We're going to hear a song in just a few minutes. At the end of the message here, Dana and the team are going to come up and they're going to sing for us just to listen to a casting crown song called Praise You in This Storm. And the basic message of the song, if you know it and have heard it, it's been out for a, while, a good while, so you've probably heard it, is that God doesn't always calm the storms in our lives. We love those stories in the Gospels, right? <laughs> the storm is going on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus stands up in the boat, and He says, peace be still, and the storm goes away. Said, That's what I want God to do in my life, make the difficulties go away. But it doesn't always happen that way. The song, the words remind us that we can still praise Him in the midst of those storms in our lives.
I, I looked up the story a little bit uh, to find the background on this, and, and Ron was sharing at the beginning of the, before our first service when we prayed together upstairs, he, he reminded me too, he'd heard the story as well. Mark Hall of the band uh, wrote the song. He was inspired by a family that they'd come alongside, a mom who was walking through a storm with her little four-year-old daughter who had cancer. So she's walking through these terrible treatments and so on. This, the, the heartbreak for this mom going through this storm with her daughter, that inspired him to write this song. Let me just give you a few of the words. You'll hear them sung in a moment. The chorus says, I'll praise you in this storm, and I will lift my hands, for you are who you are, no matter where I am. And every tear I've cried you hold in your hand, you never left my side. And though my heart is torn, I will praise you in this storm. You know, for Paul, this was going to be a storm, and it comes. He didn't even know exactly what this was going to look like. But we get in the next verses, we get a view of Paul's storm and the promise that God would be with him in the midst of the storm. This is probably about a year after the vision. We don't know exactly the time frame, but a good bit of time passed from that vision of God's promise to when this happens. Verse 12, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul, and they brought him to the place of judgment. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Now, stop there just a minute because I want to say, wait a minute, didn't God promise Paul that he would not be attacked? And here he is, Luke tells us, he is attacked. But remember, God said, you will not be attacked and harmed. Not that he wouldn't be attacked at all, that harm would not be the end result of that attack. And so that's exactly what happens. Paul does not get harmed. What's going on here? The Jews try to get the Roman government to do their dirty work again, so they claim Paul's breaking the law. They bring him into the courts. The proconsul comes. They bring it before the proconsul. And Paul is ready to defend himself. The passage says just before Paul could even speak, so he's getting ready. He's got his speech ready. He's going to defend himself. But before he can utter a word, God steps in, and he moves Gallio to speak. Watch what happens. Verse 14, just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. God intervenes through the person of this Roman proconsul. He cared nothing for Christianity. He's not saying this because he wants the church to flourish in Corinth. He doesn't know anything about it. He doesn't care anything about it. What he knows is that the, what they're bringing him does not have anything to do with Roman law. It was something to do with the Jews' offense, and so he's not going to have anything to do with it. So he releases Paul unharmed. Gallio sends away the Jewish accusers, and ironically, the crowd then turns on the Jewish leader who was there. So verse 17, the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and they beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern whatever. So we don't even know why, what happened here, but it, everything turned. God protects Paul, and now the heat, the conflict, becomes within the Jewish synagogue itself. And here's what I want you to grab from this, this morning. Here we have another favorable ruling from a Roman judge. This has happened before, it happens again here. 
Christianity is now given these added protections, just like what happened in Philippi. Now it happens here in Corinth. Now the Roman proconsul in the city has said, I've got nothing against this movement. They can do what they want. Do you see the freedom that that gave for the church to now begin to grow and flourish? God stepped in. God turned the attack on Paul into a boost for the church. It's kind of like when Joseph is attacked by his brothers. You remember that? In the Old Testament, Joseph, he's attacked by his brothers. He's sold as a slave. He goes into prison. And then he's made second only to Pharaoh. And his family comes to him for help. And he says to his brothers who had sold him into slavery, he says, you meant it for evil, but God used it for good. And that same phrase that Joseph uses back in the book of Genesis is true now here in Paul's case. These Jews who attacked him meant it for evil, God turns it into something good. And that, you see, is how you know that God is present. You hear this promise, you know, I know. And we say it all the time, God is with me. I know God is with me. Well, how do I know? The evidence is in how God moves in our lives, how God changes situations, how God can take something that is meant for bad and turn it into something good, how He can take something, a situation like Paul was in that looks like it's going to blow up, and He turns it into a blessing. And every one of us here would have examples of that. We could share situations in our lives where we've seen God do that, where God has demonstrated that He's with us by the way He moves His hands in our lives. Got an example just this past week. If you read the newsletters from Daniel and Kathleen Harrison, who are Trinity missionaries in Austria, you saw their letter. It was kind of a little bit, at first, disappointing, discouraging, because they talked about how they'd been making these plans for this next week to host a, an outreach Thanksgiving dinner in their home. And they had invited a number of unsaved friends, and they were, this was going to be a chance for them to share the gospel in, a, in, a, in their home. Well, this past week, Austria just put into place its fourth COVID lockdown, and so all those kind of public gatherings are shut down. And so there's the disappointment that they can't have this gathering that they planned for Thanksgiving. But I want you to hear what they said. Here's what they said in their newsletter. Instead of hosting an outreach for many, perhaps it was the Lord's purpose all along to pour into a friend the knowledge and love of God sharing grace and peace, comfort and stability for one who is anchorless and drifting, being tossed about in the storm. They don't tell who this one person is, but apparently God's put on their heart one person that they're going to have into their home for Thanksgiving. And they're, they're by faith saying, though it looks to us like everything is blown up for the fact that we can't do this outreach event the way we planned it, but we're trusting that God has a blessing in store for that one person that we're going to be able to touch on that day. And that's what God does. That is His presence at work in us. And so this, this week, I, I want to challenge you to think a little bit differently as we come to Thanksgiving. All right, this is a week as we come to Thanksgiving Day, we often, okay, make our list of my blessings, the things I'm thankful for, the things God's given me, the ways He provided for me, my family. That's great. Do that. Those, it's great to count our blessings. But let me challenge you to be thankful in maybe a new way. Be thankful 
that God is with you. Sometimes we take that for granted. Sometimes we don't even think to mention that in our prayers and our thanksgiving. But God's very presence and work in your life is maybe the greatest thing of all to be thankful for. So say it. Pray it this year. And be thankful and maybe even mention and talk about as a family those ways that you've seen God's presence in your life, the way that He's taken something bad and turned it into something good, the way He has moved into your life to walk with you in the midst of a storm when you've known His presence, even in the hardest times, and thank Him for that. I think maybe that would kind of create a, a new dynamic to our Thanksgiving celebrations this week. Thank you, Lord, that you're with us in the midst of it all. So what have we seen this morning? Yes, you need a good team around you. But even more importantly, you need to remember that God is with you. He's on your team, first and foremost. Let me give you a few examples from Scripture. Joshua faced the challenges of taking the promised land. And what did God say to him? I will never leave you or forsake you. Gideon faced ridiculous odds in battle as he was trying to defend the people of God. And what did the angel say to him? The Lord is with you. Mary hears the news from the, the angel that she is going to bear the Messiah. How could this be? And the angel says to her, the Lord is with you. It's why we say at the end of all of our services here at Trinity, the Lord be with you. Because that's the blessed, best blessing you could ever receive, that the Lord is with you. Whatever you're going through right now, hear the words of God to Paul. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this reminder. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for the life and ministry of Paul. And thank you for the reality that even the great apostle Paul struggled with fear, with doubt. He, he was afraid at times. He trembled at the prospect of ministry in the city of Corinth. And yet, Lord, you provided him a team of people who came around him to support him and encourage him. And then you reminded him, Lord, of your own presence with him, your work in him and through him. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of that this morning too. Whatever we're going through, Lord, and I don't know, but you know. In the, every individual that's sitting in this room or watching online this morning or, or will watch this service later on, Lord, you know what we're going through. You know the storm that we're in. And there may be fear, there may be doubt, there may be struggle, there may be frustration, there may be discouragement. But Lord, you are with us in the midst of the storm. You ride it out with us and you provide your comfort and your care and your protection in the midst of the storm. And so because of that, Lord, we can praise you in the storm. We can thank you even if we find ourselves in the middle of a storm. And I pray that we would do that well today and through this week of thanksgiving. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you just to stay seated.
Listen as the band sings this song. Let the words and the message minister to you this morning.